Good morning. Today we're going to be reading from the Old Testament, Book of Judges, chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Again, that's Judges, chapter 9, verses 1 through 15. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem to his mother's relatives and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him 70 pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-beareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, 70 men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together, and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. When it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Leslie had to do her homework this week on pronunciations with that passage. <laughs> Thank you for doing that and reading that for us this morning. Uh, if you're visiting today, again, we said we're starting a, a mini two-week series today. Our normal diet at Bethany Church is to work our way through books of the Bible, as we're doing right now with the book of Mark. But today and next Sunday, we're taking a little mini detour as we begin a small series on the topic of oppression the biblical term for what we might call abuse. Our series is called Hope for the Oppressed, Discovering God's Heart for the Abused and Afflicted. And I will be straightforward with you. To my shame, I would even say, um, this is a topic I have briefly and rarely touched upon 
in over 15 years of teaching the Bible regularly, uh, weekly. Especially since um, God's Word and the story of the Bible are a story of God's people facing oppression. From the Israelites in bondage to the exile later on in their history, they faced after the fall of their kingdom, to Christ Himself in the New Testament facing oppression, to the early Christians being persecuted. God's people's story has been a story of oppression, but deliverance. And yet the church has not always made, and I haven't always made, the obvious connection to different types of oppression, whether they be domestic or spiritual leadership abuse. The church has failed at various times, even when the connection was made. So a few precursory comments before we begin. I realize that in a two-week series... We will not be able to cover everything to say everything on this topic. That's the reality with any sermon topic. We'll have other resources available even today and continue to provide ongoing help and information as needed, and we'll revisit this as well. I also know there's some sitting here uh, today who have been through and maybe are now in situations of oppression. And that real wounds, present or past, may be reopened today as well. I realize that we as a church and our elder board, as we've discussed and uh, been thinking about this, are not as equipped as we could be and feel inadequate to shepherd in these situations. We're currently reading some resources in the elder board and discussing, and I've connected as well with a great local counselor on how to grow and educate ourselves in helping those who are in situations or have been through hard situations, but we have a long way to go. I realize that. I realize the nature of a series like this will make some of us uncomfortable this morning as we talk about painful and hard things this morning. But I also believe that none of these is reasons we shouldn't talk about this. And probably are reasons that we should. And I also believe that for the sake of the oppressed, the weak, the marginalized, to be silent is to be complicit in some way. We have to talk about hard things in the church. God's Word does all over the place. It was a hard story Leslie read this morning. Difficult story. We have to. And I also believe this, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is big enough and powerful enough and He is strong enough to deliver, redeem, Change, free, forgive, and rescue. We can have hope even in the face of oppression. So we are going to move quickly today through an outline. Have your text open here, Alan. I thought about not doing fill-ins today. They felt a little like too fun and light-hearted for a topic like this, but I decided to stick with it because we all learn different ways, and writing things sometimes helps us learn, and so we're sticking with it. There's a lot there, but we're going to answer three questions today. Three questions we're going to answer today. Here's our first one. Why this series now? Why this series now? At Bethany Church, I love, we love to do the why behind things. The reason why we're doing something. Why do we do this? Why do we do that? What's the purpose behind it? What's the goal behind it? What are we doing? So why a series now? A small two-week series on oppression. A few quick reasons. For starters, this is more prevalent than you and I would like to believe. 
This is more prevalent than you and I would like to believe. Here's a little stat. Did you know one in four women and one in seven men, so this is, this is men and women, um, are victims of severe violence from a partner at some point in their life. One in four women, but one in seven men. A lot. It's more prevalent than we'd like to believe. But here's another few reasons. I think we also live in a unique cultural moment. Our cultural moment is another one underneath this heading here. Uh, we posted our, <clears throat> our main slide on Instagram and Facebook this week, uh, um, Hope for the Oppressed and the tagline, and somebody that doesn't even go to our church commented back, um, needed and the right time for this, they said. They said the timing is right for this. Uh, somebody that doesn't even go to our church saw it and, and posted that. Our cultural moment. Uh, it, it, it seems like the right time to address this. The larger culture is, much of the church is, and here's a few reasons why. Whether it's the Catholic church scandal that's come to light again, that is a Protestant evangelical issue too. The story of thousands of children abused at the hands of oppressive leadership over decades whether it's the recent, recent excuse me, implosion of Willow Creek, one of the largest evangelical churches, and their pastors, maybe oppressive leadership and sexual activity that's been alleged. Whether it's the Me Too, hashtag Me Too movement, you've probably seen that out there, that's sweeping kind of through Hollywood, believe it or not, over this last six months, and social media where people are sharing their stories of abuse maybe now more than ever. How about our own backyard? Oppressive, abusive leadership that's taken place at a local Christian school that some of our own people have experienced for years and did. Or the fact that I know that even as a church, we haven't always, I am sure, handled situations in our own church in appropriate ways and maybe have not come alongside and shepherded some of our own women through abusive situations. And I absolutely believe this too. God has put us in our cultural moment for a reason. We're in the culture we're meant to live in. God's sovereign. He's put us where he's put us. We have to live as faithful disciples in the middle of the reality of the issues that are and the sins of our age. We have to. Remember Queen Esther. Do you remember her? She risked her life by speaking up to the king who was her husband to save God's people from oppression. Here's what uh, was spoken to her by uh, a fellow Israelite. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will rise from another place that you and your father's family will perish. And who knows that you've come to your royal position for such a time as this. We're in our cultural moment for the time that God has put us in. We have to live within the culture that he placed us in. Uh, it's, a, it's a cultural moment, uh, our time in history. Here's another reason, our biblical mandate. Another reason, our biblical mandate. If we are a people who believe God at his word, and we believe that his character, his concerns, his heart, his very heart beats uh, for the abused and the victims and the oppressed, then we too must as well and stand up for those as he does. Here's a few verses to show us God's heart, and then we'll talk about it a bit later. But Jeremiah 22.3, Thus says the Lord, Do justice and righteousness, and deliver from the hand of the oppressor. In this case, him who has been robbed. Isaiah 1.17 says this, 
learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Here's a few from Psalm. Psalm 103.6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all, all who are oppressed. Psalm 9.9, our cover, the verse on the cover of our worship folder today, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed. A stronghold in times of trouble. Why a series like this? It's a biblical mandate. God calls us to be this type of people. It's who He wants us to be. God hates to see oppression. His heart is for deliverance. And so His church's heart should be the same. And so we have to talk about it. He wants to use us in this way. Well, here's the final answer to a why series now. It's just a simple call to love our neighbor. Our love of neighbor. Husbands and wives, here's a thought. Do you, do, have you realized this before? It's a, a new thought even to me this week, but your closest neighbor who you're called to love is your spouse. Your spouse. We all know that Jesus has called us to love neighbor. neighbor. He said it in Mark, we're going to get to it in a few weeks in Mark 12 in our series, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, all your strength. The second great commandment is this one. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these, he said. So loving your neighbor takes on many forms. It does. All kinds of forms, loving your neighbor. But it's got to, I would think, include. It must include speaking up about abuse and helping those who've been abused. To be silent, to, be, to turn a blind eye, to cover up is not loving. And Ephesians 5 says it anyways. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. The why behind that, our cultural moment, our biblical mandate, and our call just to love each other as neighbors. That's why a series at this time. But let's look at our second question now that we've answered this why this series at this time. Our second question is this one. What is this? What are we even talking about? I've said this word oppression. You're kind of thinking, what are we talking about today? Maybe the tagline gave you a little hint. um, God's heart for the abused and afflicted. But what is oppression? If if, if we're going to use this term for Abuse, whether that's domestic or, or leadership of, or other kinds. What does it mean and what does it look like? Well, as you answer our next two questions today, I want to I be really upfront with you and know that I'm, I'm unashamedly relying on the insights from a lady named Darby Strickland. She's a female counselor with Christian uh, Counseling and Education Foundation. Here's a couple resources uh, you can see here that I, I, I leaned on heavily this week, uh, and a lot of what we're talking about today has been summarized from this. Some of it's directly taken from her, uh, as I even realized myself, um, my need to, to, to grow in this area and understanding. Um, one of these resources, this one on the right, it's called Domestic Abuse, Recognize, Respond, and Rescue. We bought a bunch of those today to have out in the gathering place as a resource, just wanted to let you know that, that they're um, out there today. So, um, what are we talking about? What is oppression then? How are we going to answer this? Well, the more common term uh, for what we're talking about today is, is abuse. Or domestic abuse, our culture uses that term. Or even leadership abuse. 
that term as well. Um, but the term oppression, why we're using that is because I think it's a better term because it's the biblical term that God uses for this. It's what God calls it himself. And so it helps us understand, as we use this term oppression rather than abuse, it helps us understand God's heart for the oppressed, because that's the term he uses, as we'll see later on even a bit more. This term oppressed covers a wide variety of situations, too, and relationships, not just domestic and marriage in the home, but leadership, could be friendship, could be um, uh, employee to boss, All kinds of relationships can become oppressive. But I think here's where the term is really valuable for us. It speaks to, the term oppression speaks to the the, the dominating motives of the heart of the oppressor. That's where it's really helpful. If we use this more biblical term for what we're talking about today, it speaks to the heart of the oppressor, which means this, that ultimately, oppression is not a marriage problem. Especially if we're talking the domestic realm, which we're going to highlight the most today. Oppression's not actually a marriage problem, even when it takes place within a marriage. You know, you're saying, well, wait a minute, Pastor Jeff. I mean, most abuse occurs within marriage, doesn't it? Absolutely. I agree with that. But to approach what we're talking about today as normative marriage problems is not helpful and actually can be dangerous. If you talk to somebody who's been through couples counseling with an oppressive spouse, they will actually tell you if they sit down together as a couple with a counselor in an oppressive situation now, it actually can do more harm and hurt than help. Here's a quote from Darby Strickland, who are those two references I put up. And she's talking about, uh, to, to give a little frame for the quote, the approach of taking a couple where oppression, abuse is in a marriage, and trying to counsel them together. Here's what she says about, this approach failed when she's tried it. It failed to account for how oppression works. Here's why. Oppressors are not grieved at their own sins, and they're not committed to change. Instead, they magnify the faults in their spouses and are more than happy to have these failings addressed. It justifies their domination. See, I told you so. You're the problem. Even if the oppressed spouse makes a change, it will not improve the marriage and can actually empower further abuses. It feeds the very fire you're trying to extinguish. It's not actually a marriage problem. The place where it takes place the most, yes, is domestic. So before marriage can counseling even can take place in a situation like this, the oppressor has to be willing to see the main problem is not their spouse, which is actually the case of most marriage issues. In this case in particular, it's the oppressor's, I would call it narcissistic, self-entitled worship of themselves. They have to be counseled first in isolation. They have to be. And they have to admit and repent and see that to even start a process of transformation. It's not a marriage problem. And realize, here's our second point on this, oppression is different than normative marriage sin. 
Oppression is different than normative marriage sin. What do I mean by that? I'm not today with that term. We're not excusing sin in marriage. We're not saying that. That ah, it's normal. Don't even worry about it. That's just, you know, any sin in marriage. That it's just okay. We're not saying that. <clears throat> All of you that have been married or are married or hope to get married know or will know that marriage is actually a hotbed, a greenhouse for sin. <laughs> Would you agree with that? I think we could. It absolutely is. So we're not excusing um, sin in marriage. So as you hear these descriptions today, you may be wondering, uh, is he talking about us? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about our marriage? When, you marry, when you're married to someone, you're placing yourself in the most, the closest, the most intimate um, proximity to another sinner. <laughs> That's the reality. You're placing yourself in that. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's God-ordained. It, there is ways that it flourishes and brings joy and health and beauty and life. But you also know it's also the primary arena to see your sin exposed, isn't it? That's just the reality of marriage. And actually, God intended it in some ways to be that. We all say and do hurtful things in a marriage to one another. We all fail each other in a myriad of ways in a marriage, if you're married or have been, daily. We all fail to love our spouses like Christ wants us to daily. So how do you know then? If sin is in every marriage, how do you know? If you were someone who was oppressing today or being oppressed, how would you know? Well, for starters, here's a working definition that hopefully will give us a look that it is not normative marriage sin we're talking about today. Here's a, a definition for oppression from that booklet, Domestic Abuse. Oppression takes place. When one spouse seeks to control and dominate the other through a pattern of coercive, controlling, and punishing behavior. This is different than normative marriage sin. It can be physical. It can be psychological. It can be emotional. It can be spiritual. It can be financial. It can be relational. It can be sexual. It can be all these things. These are tactics that are used in a marriage to cause terror in the oppressed, you might say. It seeks to isolate them, manipulate them, threaten them, withhold things from them, demand things from them. All to control is the word you see there. You're in the way of what I want and deserve, and I'll do whatever it takes to get it. And it's devastating on so many levels to the oppressed. And that's why there's no quick fix here today. We're not giving quick fixes here today. Um, no, just like, hey, just change. You know, just change. Just stop. We're not giving quick fixes here today. We are talking about a messy tangled process that our parable in Judges 9 actually shows us. We're going to look at a few things from Judges 9. When it was read this morning, you're probably like, What's the, where's the connection here? It is a, it's a strange story. It's a violent story. It's a hard story. It's a confusing story. But we're going to look at a few things from Judges 9 before we look and close with God's heart for the oppressed. Here's the first thing we're going to see from Judges 9. 
Jotham gives us this little parable. And what this parable gives us and is going to give us is a picture of what I'm going to call life-starving leadership. Life-starving leadership. So the opposite of life-giving or life-producing or flourishing. We're talking about, excuse me, about life-starving leadership here. You probably thought, what is this passage about when you heard it today? Well, the parable that Jotham tells at the second half of that passage today is going to help us understand from God's point of view what the heart of an oppressor is like and what the destructive consequences are for living under kind of domination. Book of Judges. Do you remember that that time of Israel's history? It's sort of a strange time. Before they had kings, before they had leaders and some godly, some not, it was a time called the Judges. A time when God raised up these judges um, to lead God's people, the Israelites. It was a time also in history where God says the people did what was right in their, remember that, own eyes. It was not a good time. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It's mentioned all throughout the book over and over and over again. You could equate it maybe to a time like our day. Everyone does what's right in his or her own eyes. One of these judges was named Gideon. And after he died, his son Abimelech is the one we're talking about. That's the context. Gideon, this judge, has died. He did some good things for God. Um, He died. His son Abimelech becomes... And I think God even has this passage in here for us to see. Abimelech becomes a textbook oppressor. A textbook oppressor. And now we look at Abimelech, he uses deception to convince, to manipulate his family into the belief that I will, I'll be the best one to take care of you. I'm the guy. I'm the best one to take care of you. I'll watch out for you. I'll watch out for your best interests like a leader is actually supposed to, whether it's a pastor, whether it's a school administrator, whether it's a husband, like they're supposed to. He gave off that impression. However, Abimelech talked his mother's family into letting him, actually paying for the killing, this is a real story now, the killing of 70 of his brothers. It's it's. It's a horrific story in Judges, like many of them are. But one. One got away. One hid himself and escaped. And so the man who shares this parable is Jotham, as you heard it read in there. Jotham escaped. Um, and so he comes back. He comes back to share. And we pick up in verses 7 through 15 today, our part of the parable. We get this parable now of Different trees it talks about. All these different trees in there from which we can pull out some points to show us a vivid picture of life-starving leadership. Look at verse 8 of chapter 9. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them. They said to the olive tree, reign over us. The trees here, as as they go out, they're to represent for us God's people, the Israelites, the Jews. And they go out and they ask an olive tree and then a fig tree, and then a vine to reign over them. But the beginning of this parable, you see how these three trees respond to God's people in the parable coming. 
they respond, they know their rightful place is one of service, of one of service. They're not willing to grasp it, to, to, to do whatever it takes to get power. They know their rightful place of service and the role they're meant to have. There's no desire for glory or power in these first three trees. But the bramble is the fourth one. And the bramble had different thoughts. Look at verse 14 and 15 with me. All the trees said to the bramble, you come and reign over us. The bramble said to the trees, if in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. A bramble is prickly. A bramble is thorny. we got a picture of it coming up here. A bramble overtakes. A bramble smothers. Take a look at the picture here to see sort of a, a picture of what a bramble is. It's a, it's a gnarled mess, really, that has thorns. That's a bramble. And did you catch the irony there? The bramble promises shade, which also the Bible means protection. The bramble promises shade. Does that plant look like it can provide much shade? No. No leaves, no tall branches to reach over and out and cover, provide shade and protection. None of that. We're meant to catch the irony there. No, just life-starving, choking leadership is what we're getting at. Here's what a bramble does. A bramble encircles the oppressed, as Abimelech did, and squeezes, making flourishing and thriving impossible. This plant, this bramble, was not suitable to lead. This bramble was not a suitable leader for the trees, and yet this bramble grasps for, seeks, does anything it can to get that power and maintain it. It encircles, it envelops with thorns, and it keeps squeezing tighter and tighter. That's what a real bramble does out in, 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 in nature. It encircles and envelops. Did you catch? He even warns them, the bramble. Sure, I'll give you shade and refuge, but watch out. If you cross me, I will breathe like fire, is what he says. I'll destroy you, is what he says. Let's take the parable and put it in our own terms then. Not just bramble, but an oppressor then, in any type of relationship where it's taking place, grasps for power, grasps for control, rather than providing servant, leader, protection. That's what we're getting at here. Can you see why these situations are so messy and so entangled if, uh, and hard to fix if what we're talking about here is something like a thorny plant that, that chokes out life? So rather than serve and cherish and protect and provide for his spouse as Christ did, the church, an oppressor exploits and uses this to feed his or her narcissistic, self-entitled, self-worship, we've called it. That's what an oppressor does. Can you see how 
this goes past and beyond the normative sin of a marriage or other relationship. If this is you today, and you're stuck in a bramble today, I want you to know there is hope. I don't want to oversimplify this today, that a, a tangle like a bramble is not easy to become untangled from, disentangled from. It may take a lot of time. It's got to be careful. It's got to be thoughtful. It may take many people and resources, the church even being just one of those. But I want us to. We want to be a church that comes and walks alongside those and helps those who are oppressed to become free of that entanglement first. That's number one priority. That is number one priority. If someone's caught in a bramble, help them figure out how to disentangle. Why do we know that? Because we get to close with looking at God's heart for the oppressed. What is God's heart for the oppressed? When we see God's heart for the oppressed, you and I, when we know He is a deliverer, and Jesus Himself came to free the oppressed, when we see that and know that, to free the oppressed from sin and destruction, we too will have a desire to be part of that process. Part of that process, however that looks, and probably unique for any given situation. So let's see his heart for the oppressed by walking through a few things. Here's the first one I want you to hear. If you're in this or know somebody else or have been in your past, the abuse is not your fault. The abuse is not your fault. Abusing someone is always inexcusable in God's Word. It is not your fault. An oppressor will come and blame an oppressor will say it was you. If you just do that, if you just do this, if you just give me this, we absolutely know from even our Mark series in Mark. Chapter 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. He lists all these evils and says, all these evils come from inside and defile a, per a person. An oppressor's anger and abuse comes from inside them. It's already in their heart. It's already inside of them. It's the, same, it's the same really for all our sins. Whatever you see come out of you was already in you. That's what Jesus was saying when we looked at those words a couple weeks ago. Whatever comes out of you was already in you. It's like thinking about a, a big bowl of water. And when you shake it up, water comes out. Why? Because water was already in it. That's why. It's not the shaking's fault. It's because it was already inside the bowl. That's what it is. We're responsible for what comes out of us. We all get angry at our spouses. We do. But there are plenty of normative, you might say, normal, even helpful ways to express anger. It's not your fault. Here's a second one. Thoughts you could have, maybe having. You do not deserve this. You do not deserve this. Any of us, when we suffer whether it's a situation like we're talking about today or other severe situations of suffering that we have been through or you will be through in your life, it's only natural to ask God, isn't it? Why? Why, God? Why am I going through this? Why is this happening 
to me. Uh, Darby Strickland, who even quoted one other time today, said this, We may think, and you may if you're in a situation like this or other situation of suffering, we may think God is punishing us. But this thinking is false as it fails to account for God's grace. Our merit, past or present, does not determine God's love and care for us, for you. God's love is for the unlovely and broken. And when Jesus Christ is your Savior, you know and need to be told and need to hear and need to tell yourself you're saved by grace alone. Not by your goodness, not by your works. And so the things that come into your life are not ways where God is saying, hey, I'm going I'm to punish them. I'm going to make sure they own up and, and pull themselves up by their bootstrap and, and, and get better because we're saved by grace. Of course God wants us to grow, but he doesn't do it by saying we deserve this or that and then giving it to us when we're saved by grace. When God looks at you, if you are a follower of Christ, he looks as if he's looking on his own son. And so that means he loves you like he loves the son. He's not out to get you. And, you, and to use other means in your life to get you. He's not. You do not deserve this. Here's another one. God hates violence. God hates violence. Absolutely hates violence. We are His creatures made in His image. And so to do violence against one of His creatures, whoever it is, to do violence against one made in his image is an act of violence against God's image as image bearers. He hates violence. In fact, it's heinous in his eyes. Take a look at Psalm 11.5. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. He hates violence you're married and find yourself in a violent situation in a marriage, let me hear, hear me say this. It is not a sin to get away from violence. It's not a sin to get away from violence. And God doesn't ask any of us anywhere in Scripture to put ourselves in violence or to leave ourselves in violent situations. Scripture does not command you to stay in a violent situation. Why is that? Here's why. Because oppression violates God's design for all, all relationships, wherever it takes place. It violates God's design for all relationships. We're going to spend more time on this next week in the second week of this two-week series. So we're just going to hit it briefly today. But Ephesians 5 says this, Husbands, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, on the one hand, it's impossible. It's Christ, but he calls us towards it. He calls us to run at it, to love this way and live this way and serve this way the way he did. So that marriage then is supposed to be a place of, of safety, of protection, 
uh, of provision. And how did Christ love the church? We know humble sacrifice. If your idea of masculinity is bossing your wife around, or your children, or dominating her to bend your will, that's actually not strong, and it's actually not masculine. There's no one who is more masculine than Christ. And yet he was always serving. He was always deferring. He was always putting the interests and preferences of others ahead of himself. So I don't think any of us would say Christ wasn't a true man. He was the most manliest man that ever manned on earth. He was. That was Jesus. We'll talk more on this one next week. Two more today and we're going to close. God sees your suffering. If this is you right now, if this was you, if this becomes you, I hope today is a cautionary tale even for us as we look at relationships and what would be good and godly and wise for us to be in. But he sees your suffering. It's only natural, I think, for a situation of oppression to make you feel uh, isolated, alone, In fact, that's what an oppressor wants to do at many times. And you may be tempted to think, where is God in this? Where is God? Does He see me? Does He know what I'm going through? I want us, I pray, I hope that God will give you hope in just knowing that Our Lord, Christ Himself, experienced great oppression too. He sees, He knows, He's experienced it Himself. He took on a body and put Himself in close proximity to a bunch of sinners, didn't He? Isaiah said this, He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. There's his isolation. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. He was oppressed. There's the very term. And afflicted, yet did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. No other God does this. You can look at any other religion of the world. No other God but Jesus Christ put himself on the line like this. No other God of any religion of the world can ever relate to you in your suffering. They cannot. They haven't experienced it. Jesus Christ took on a body. And Isaiah tells us that he felt and feels what you feel. He was oppressed himself. He was afflicted himself. No other God puts himself on the line like this. But Jesus Christ. So that he can redeem us, yes, but also so that he can identify with you. So that you can know that there might not be any other human that could know what you're going through, but Christ does. Jesus does. I've got to believe that. What other hope do we have? No one else is living you know, the exact life I'm living or you're living. No one else is inside the body experiencing exactly what you are except Jesus Christ if you're one of his followers. He's that intimate with you as well. He knows exactly what you've been through. And he has been through it too. So he sees it. 
two. The rejection, the suffering. And here's our final one today. He sees you in it and he has a desire to rescue you. How do we know that? God has always, think about the, the arc of the Bible now. From beginning to end, God has always been rescuing his people from oppression. Rescue and oppression, they're, they're always actually, they're always linked together in the Bible. They're never really even found apart. They're always linked together. Oppression and rescue. Think of the Israelites in Egypt and slavery for years and years and years. And Jesus himself even came and said these words, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. Those aren't my words. Those aren't our words. Those are Jesus' words. If you're in an oppressive relationship today, I want you to know there is, there's hope. I've got to believe that. If Christ's words are true, if he means that all what he said he came to do, I don't believe it's just even an eter- a future deliverance someday. He, the kingdom is breaking in now. He's, he's breaking people free today. Setting people free today. And so what he invites us to do is, is to come and find shade with him. Protection with him. Deliverance with him if you're the oppressed. If you're an oppressor, he calls you to life-changing repentance today. Today. Like we said at the beginning, there, there, there's no easy here. There's no magic fix here. There's no secret prayer to say. There's no, there's no, there's no easy fix. Remember, it's like, it's like the bramble. We that judges talked about. But I want our church, I, I, I want to be a shepherd. Your elders want to be. Other people in this church I know have the same heart. Want to be people who walk beside those who are going through this. Like I said, I, I don't have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. I don't have this all figured out. But we've got at least to put this out there today. We want to walk through the suffering of life together, whatever it is. Whether it's something like we're describing today or an illness. We've gotten our things like that in our congregation we're going through. All kinds of things. We have to walk together through this. These kind of things. As messy as they are and even with not having it all figured out. And i got to believe that the gospel is big enough for this. I have to. For you, for this, for whatever situation that God allows whatever comes into our life individually or as a church. I've got to believe that. We've got to hold on to that. That the gospel is big enough for this. It doesn't mean anything in life is easy. It doesn't mean that. But what do we have without that? What do we have without the gospel and the rescue that Jesus Christ promises and does bring through really hard situations? That's what I have to offer you. That's what we have to offer each other. But that's the greatest thing there is. That's the greatest thing there is, and we have that. So this isn't to minimize today. 
This isn't to say, oh, great, we talked about it, now we're done, but to say we have the resources here, but we've got to believe that. We've got to use the resources, which means walking through hard stuff. Jesus is rescuing, and I don't believe it's just in the future. I believe it's now, too. I believe it's now, too. Let's pray. Lord, uh, I don't want to say much after this message other than we need your mercy and grace. I need it. We all need it. The oppressed needs it. The oppressor needs it. Each and every one of us needs your absolute forgiveness, freedom, grace, and mercy. Lord, I'm ill-equipped for this. I know that. But when we look at your heart in Scripture, we look at what Christ came and did. When we see the hard conversations he had, we look at your heart of deliverance for the oppressed throughout the Bible, we have to at least talk about this a little bit. And my God, I would pray there would be hope today. Not just um, something fleeting and oversimplification, just some nice platitudes a pastor said, but I pray, my God, that you would give hope to those oppressed today. Not just in our church, but in Canby and around our state and nation, Lord. Let pastors and people speak out with the hope that only you can provide. Lord, forgive me. Forgive me, and I repent today even for not being a man who has spoken up much about this and even a leader. Forgive me for that sin, that blindness, that short-sightedness, Lord. And lead us forward as a church. Lead us forward. But we don't have all the answers. We will not do things perfectly. But Lord, let us at least do something. Let us be a church who loves our hurting, loves our ill, loves our weak, loves our oppressed. Give us creative and wise ways to love, Lord, I pray. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're closing today with a song David's going to lead us 